Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 237th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Brittany Anderson. Brittany is the president and partner at Sweet Financial, a hybrid RIA in Fairmont, Minnesota, that manages $860 million in assets for 1,100 client households. What's unique about Brittany, though, is that she joined Sweet Financial directly out of college as a client service associate, and in the 15 years since, has moved progressively through the ranks, ultimately taking on the role of COO and now becoming the firm's president and one of its owners. In this episode, we talk in depth about how Sweet Financial has been able to steadily grow towards the $1 billion milestone, despite being located in a rural Minnesota town with a population of just around 10,000. How Brittany's firm hires new team members into salaried support roles so they can develop and learn within the firm's culture, staying in those positions for as many as five years before becoming advisors and only then starting to gradually assume lead roles with client relationships. And how Brittany is able to recruit talent to work in a small town by treating job ads as marketing pieces and seeking to attract good cultural fits first and foremost, and then later working to teach the technical skills. We also talk about how Brittany and Sweet Financial concentrate on four main business development channels, including creating dedicated platforms to help women who are navigating major life transitions and to advise business owners on building culture and growing their own businesses. How Brittany has implemented the entrepreneurial operating system as a means to set a three-year vision in order to keep the firm systematically and deliberately moving forward. And how it's that EOS-driven three-year vision that acts as a filter through which Brittany examines the various business opportunities and initiatives to ensure the firm is only pursuing those that moves the firm towards the vision that's been set. And be certain to listen to the end where Brittany shares how she's eschewed the trendier marketing channels and instead has found continued success with long-term drip email campaigns, knowing that the key to staying at the top of prospects' minds is wholly reliant on consistency. The challenges that Brittany faced as she transitioned out of the -the boots-on-the-ground operations role to become a leader of the firm with a responsibility to direct, inspire, and lead her team in action. And why Brittany feels that with women controlling more wealth in the country than ever before, there's never been a better time for women in particular to come into the financial advice industry and serve women of wealth from a female perspective. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Brittany Anderson. Welcome, Brittany Anderson, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. I am so excited to be here. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today and, and just getting to talk a bit about, about your advisory firm and, and your journey through it. You know, you, I think, bring a lot of really interesting, uh, unique pathways to the, the conversation, both as someone that, that started out in a firm directly out of college, grew all the way to be president of the firm, an advisory firm that's now, I know, closing in on a billion dollars of assets under management and is not in a dense metropolitan area, where I think the like the standard rule or view it seems for for advisory firms is like, well, you really have to be in a dense metropolitan area where there's a lot of people and dollars, or you can't really grow a firm that that's that's very sizable. And I know you guys have just broken a lot of different parts of that mold over <laughs> over the past one in several decades, and so just really excited to talk about like what it's like when 
you're just, you know, building a firm in your small town and saying, we're going to grow this thing and we can make it big and we're going to grow and develop the people internally that it takes to get there. Yeah. You know, Michael, I think there's such a misconception about having to be in some heavily populated metropolitan area. So, you know, I've always said that if we can do it in a town of 10,000 people, I think that any dedicated driven advisor can absolutely accomplish whatever they set their minds to. So maybe just to start right there and paint the picture for everyone a little, can you share with us the advisory firm itself, the size of the firm, who you are, what you do, and and certainly apropos of the conversation and where you are. Absolutely. So we are, like I said, located in southern rural Minnesota, town of 10,000. So in uh, Fairmont, Minnesota, we have a satellite location in Jackson, which is actually even smaller than Fairmont is. So we are, as you said, moving fast towards a billion dollars in assets under management. We're just shy of 900 million right now. We sit around T12 of about 5.4, 5.5 million in, in revenue. We're definitely focused on taking care of the client. And I know that if you talk to any advisor out there, that's kind of the general theme. But really, when you look at our growth and you look at how we've been able to accomplish what we've been able to accomplish in our area, it's by solely focusing on the needs of the client and kind of staying away from falling in love with our own process, but rather falling in love with what the client or the end user loves. So that's really been a a huge contribution to our success. And then obviously our team, we take great care in finding absolute diamonds in the rough and finding the gems that are able to serve our clients at that high capacity and really show up for each other, be that team, be that really tight knit unit, and then therefore be able to deliver an incredible experience to our wonderful clients. So how many clients are there with the firm? I mean, just when you're when you're talking about almost 900 million of of AUM currently, you know, five and a half million dollars of revenue, just how how many clients are there that you're actually serving in the practice? Yeah, we've got about 1,100 households. So we definitely monopolize. When you think about a town of 10,000 people, we definitely monopolize, you know, a lot of the wealth here, and and that's been kind of a wonderful thing being able to serve in our community and be able to grow in that regard. So right around 1,100. And then how many team members are there? Like how big is the team for all the work that you're doing for clients? Yeah, right now we've got 16 people. And while we're recording, we've got a couple interns too in our marketing department being able to tackle some projects. Our big focus is definitely not necessarily on growing a massive team, but being able to increase efficiencies and scalability within the people that we have. So 16 is where it sits right now. And I think that's probably where we'll sit for a while. And so then talk to us a little bit more about just clients and where clients come from. I mean, I mean, just you, you would make the point here, like 1100 client households, town of 10,000. Like, (laughs) I mean, have you really just like taken out the top 10% of the entire town into the, into the firm? Is it, is it, you know, broader across Southern Minnesota? Have you actually built like a, a national reach? You just happen to be based in Southern Minnesota. Where are these clients and how does the clientele tie to the location of the firm? You know, I wish it was as easy as just being able to monopolize like 10% of the population here currently. 
So actually we serve clients in over 30 states, but it's interesting. We were talking about this recently in a leadership meeting that the majority of the people that we serve, even if they're across the country or in a different country, because we have clients in a couple different countries, they all have ties to our area or near our area. So typically people at one point inhabited about within a 60 mile radius of our office, but again, they have ties back. So it's it's been fun. It allows for us to grow and expand and actually meet people in other areas of the country to be able to foster more business. But really our core has been kind of the heart of Southern Minnesota, a little bit into Northern Iowa and, and really the surrounding area with people having ties and roots here where we are. So clients are spread out now, but only from that sort of natural function of we get clients when they're in our geographic area, but they don't always stay forever in our geographic area. And so as they move, relocate, jobs, retirements, you're in Southern Minnesota. So I'm going to presume there was some small subset that said, mm, I think I'm ready to retire where it's warmer. So <laughs> yes. maybe a little bit of that. So clientele are spread out, but but from a growth and business development perspective, your focus really has been you are growing in Southern Minnesota. Yeah. That's where you're drawing your clientele from. It's not a, you know, we do a giant virtual online campaign and attract clients all over the place. And we could have been anywhere in the world. We just happened to be in this area of Minnesota. Yeah, that's really been our growth up to this point. And we do have some strategies that we're working on going into the rest of the year, really over the next probably 18 to 24 months where we are going to expand our national reach. So talk to us now about like how growth works. How have you found and developed and brought on 1,100 plus client households in a not dense metropolitan area? Like, how do you how do you market at the firm? How do you get clients? Where does where does new business come from? Yeah, you know, I wish that I could come on and say that there's some fancy marketing strategy that's going to triple your business in six months. <laughs> but really, the core of how we've grown is through referrals and through that just great care. The way our office is set up is our advisors, we have them solely focused on being in front of clients. So their whole job is really on building relationships and going deeper with people, getting to know them, you know, being able to be involved in their life and not just be that, you know, financial advisor on the back end. So the way that we're structured and set up, it allows for the advisors to truly deepen relationships, to show that they care. And in turn, I mean, you increase your referability that way, because if you're being taken care of, you're going to want your friends, your family member, and all of the people in your life that you care about to be able to be served in that same capacity. So that's really been our core focus up to this point. So then talk to us more about how this works. I mean, I think a lot of firms say like we we try to have our advisors manage as many clients as they as they can and and stay in front of their clients. Like is there something unique or different about how you're structuring advisors or the team or the rest that that you think makes this distinct from other firms that nominally say they're trying to do the same thing? Yeah, I think one thing that that helps us to really lean into that whole notion of having the advisor being completely freed up. We actually have for our, I guess you could call mature advisors, we have somebody sitting in on all of their appointments. So that person is taking the notes, they're decimating to do is after, they're making sure that the follow-up is put into our system, is met. So the advisor literally walks into the meeting they have usually about a once a week prep for the upcoming week. So obviously they're prepared going into the appointment. But other than that, I mean, they, they, they're they in there. They're completely solely focused on the conversation. He's like, what do you call that position? How do you 
how do you position it? I mean, is this meant to be sort of an administrative note-taking role? Is this more of a frame this as like a paraplanner associate advisor role? It's like, how, how do you characterize that role? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually have a couple different paths that we utilize in the office. For advisors that we've got, or I should say almost like a junior advisor role, and I'm going to go back a little bit to give context to this. You know, typically the way that we hire and or train advisors, we're not necessarily looking for somebody who has some wonderful book of business out there who's already got a ton of clients that can basically come in, tuck in and, you know, do their magic. What we really want is for a person to come in and learn the inner workings and the culture of the office. So you might have somebody that comes in through our client or concierge service department. And so they understand the processing, the servicing aspect of the client. You might have somebody that comes in through the wealth services department where they're learning more of the plan aspect and kind of the behind the scenes there. So as time goes on, if we're looking at, all right, you know, our founder, he's looking to maybe transition a couple clients over to these junior advisors to help them get a start, build their book. They might sit in if they're the person who's going to take the relationship over in the next, say, 18, 24 months. The other aspect of that is we do have a little bit of a silo creation going on at the same time where we've got a team where we have an advisor who is basically at capacity. He has his support service person and they work collaboratively. So she is sitting in the appointments. She's doing all the service work. She's never going to take over the relationship, but for this particular advisor, he's also not at the point of, you know, transitioning any clients away from him either. So those are really the two different, I guess, ways that we have people sitting in and, and the intent and purpose behind, behind those individual scenarios. And so how do you handle these situations where if they're working in teams and you've got a younger person who's coming on, who's, who's at some point supposed to take over a portion of those clients and, and split them off, does that create, you know, re- revenue compensation issues for the Advisors like, hey, yeah, I, I like the help, but I don't, I don't necessarily want to let clients and revenue go. That's an interesting question, and honestly, I, I attribute this to just our overall culture in the firm, and for a couple different reasons. So, number one, when we have an advisor, you know, somebody sitting in that is going to potentially take over clients at some point in time, they're salaried at that given time. So there's no revenue share going on. You know, the way that we position this is that this is an amazing opportunity to learn. It's like being in, you know, in the heart of the action. You're actually seeing that conversation. You're learning so much about the client. You're learning different styles of presentation based on the advisor that you're sitting in with. So that in that particular situation, they're salaried. But when you look at that transition happening at some point where, yeah, you are going to have a little bit of compensation removed from your book it's looking at opportunity cost. So when we're doing that, we're not saying, okay, well, let's go ahead and skim off a bunch of your income and you only have to see these clients, but you're also losing a bunch of money. What we're saying is, all right, so if we're moving and transitioning some of these clients, what else can you do with your time to help you generate even more opportunities within your book? So, you know, I think it's a mentality shift. And I think that you know, when you go from, oh, that's mine and I'm losing to a mentality of growth and opportunity, that becomes an obsolete non-issue, honestly. And so advisors who are established are on a some kind of revenue sharing, variable-based compensation. So they 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 transition from salaries to to variable compensation as they move from support roles into roles where they're actually responsible for clients and leading their own clients. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think compensation in our world and in our industry is so interesting. Cause I think if you talk to, you know, 50 different practices or 500 different practices, they're all going to have a different way of compensating their advisors. Yep. So yeah, the way that we do it is basically zero to 500,000 in production. They get paid 17%. 500 to a million is 21 and a million plus is 25%. So, and that obviously resets each year, but that's really how, how we've decided works best for, for our advisors and our practice. Okay. And, and so that's just straight percentage compensation to them is, is, is the model. It's not necessarily a, a salary plus base or other pieces. Like once you're at that level, just you're getting a percentage of the, the clients that you're servicing and, and, you know, tiers as you move up. Exactly. And, you know, for the advisors that, or I should say more of that kind of junior advisor, associate advisor role, as they're kind of moving up through to that full-time advisor position, you know, they would have a base salary and then it would scale back as that production-based income increased. So that's something that we've done in the past too, that seems to work well. And, you know, I think maybe just by chance, you know, it's very rare that anybody ever has to go backwards per se. You know, it's important to us across the board culturally for people to really have skin in the game and be hungry and want to work for it. But that's been something that's worked well, you know, internally here. So I know the fear for a lot of firms as well is, you know, if, if they if they grow up on this system, at, at, at some point they say like, Hey, if I go open up my own shop across the street, like, you know, I'm not getting a 17 to 25% payout. Like I get, <laughs> you know, I get the whole dollars. I mean, I get the whole dollars minus business expenses. It's not free, but like I can take a swing in a much larger percentage. Do you worry about those kinds of transitions? If you have you had struggles with those kinds of transitions where advisors say, Hey, I think I can, I think I can do this on my own now. So I'm just gonna kind of take my clients and hang my own shingle over here. That's something that we've definitely talked about as a leadership team. So we're not naive to the notion of it. As far as being concerned or having worry around it, I really don't. I'm of the mindset that, you know, if somebody really wants to run their own business, they want to be that advisor that kind of starts their practice from the ground up, they probably would have done it before even coming to us or maybe chosen a different path and or pay structure too. Because there's plenty of offices out there that you can go and be kind of a contract advisor per se, get paid on a you know more of a 1099 basis. You can own your own book. You don't really have to be, I guess, managed per se. So there's, there's many different structures out there. You know, internally here, I, I honestly can't think of anybody that has ever really had a desire to go and do the build, they'd rather have the team and the infrastructure that we've spent, you know, years and years and years building and be able to lean on that because they're able to serve and, you know, see more clients and still have that, the time to enjoy their lives versus the 16, 18 hour days that it takes to sometimes build a business and get it off the ground. So in other words, it's, it's part of the hiring process that you're, you know, you're not necessarily getting people who are, you know, hard and I don't mean this in a negative way. No, yeah. Maybe some people think like you're you're not going to try to find hardcore entrepreneurial like build my own giant book of clients folks because those are the people who are actually maybe most likely to hang their own shingle. You're you're looking for and hiring people who say I don't want to build all this myself. I want to be in a team environment. I feel like I need to be supported. You know, I want to be in an established firm that can that already has this stuff figured out so I can just do my thing. And, and when those are the people that you're hiring in the first place, like they don't tend to go break away because that's not the mentality that they had when they were coming and getting hired in the first place. 
You know, that's exactly it. And, you know, it's interesting because we've actually had advisors approach us who were looking to possibly tuck in in some capacity to our team, which honestly would have been a, a pretty lucrative opportunities for us because they're essentially, they've got their own book, they're managing it. You know, they want maybe a little bit of the infrastructure that we've got. And we've said, no, you know, we really try hard and fast to stay true to our vision of the future. And that doesn't, that, that doesn't really entail somebody who we have that fear of, oh my gosh, are they going to break away? And all of that work of onboarding and kind of integrating them into our company and our firm and our processes. And then what does it turn out to be all for nothing? that's really not something that we're interested in. So yeah, I think that it's great for those people to kind of go spearhead and and build their own thing. But for us being able to shape them and have them understand our internal processes and go into more of a relationship management type role, that's just seemed to work really well for us and for our clients. Interesting. So I'm like, I'm really feeling a, a, just a very substantive difference in your sort of hiring philosophy and approach of, you know, we, we want people who want to be employees and are part of a team. You know, we, we'd rather not even take entrepreneurial tuck-in advisors who, who, you know, come saying they want to bundle in because, hey, at the end of the day, they may still be a little too independent-minded and they're not necessarily going to follow our systems. And, you know, if they're willing to come in like that, they may leave like that, that you, you've got a a very particular focus of the types of advisors that you do want to hire and have involved in the firm. Absolutely. And, you know, our internal process, our trademark process, it's the dream architect. And the reason that I bring that up is that that's really how, you know, when we look at training advisors, when we look at training any team members, it's all centered around delivering this amazing experience. And you have to be indoctrinated into how we do business and the language and the feel and, you know, everything from, from the moment that we interact with a prospect till they're engaged in having that long-term relationship with us, you really have to eat, sleep, and breathe what we do. And if it's not a cultural alignment or cultural fit, it'll fail every time. So then help me understand who do you hire? I, I, I'm just like, <laughs> I mean, you talk about sort of like cultural alignment and advisors that have this certain mentality, but I, I'm just wondering, like, how do you describe the ideal advisor you're trying to hire and and where do you find them and how do you screen them just to make sure you're getting these people that fit the way that you want to do the business? Yeah. So a lot of the success that we've had, and this is, this is actually kind of interesting. So, you know, we talk about our, our clients a little bit ago about people that have ties to the area and then they move on and maybe go to some different part of the country and new, a new stage of life. There's a little bit of that that happens with our hires. So a lot of the people in our firm, this is advisors and just, you know, support team as well. You know, they may have moved away for a portion of time, gone to school, got their degrees and and kind of lived some aspect of their life elsewhere, but then they have roots and they have tie backs to our community. So the way that we like to bring advisors in per se is, you know, rather than hiring somebody straight into an advisor position, we will bring them in through either our client or concierge service department, or we'll bring them in through our wealth services department. And what we're able to do then is we're able to say, okay, well, you're going to understand not just what it takes to serve as an advisor and be in front of the client, but also how the inner workings happen, what's going on behind the scenes. So what happens is, is as they come in and they spend maybe, you know, about five years has kind of proven to be the, I guess, the golden figure. They'll spend about five years in the department that they're hired into and and get exposure and start, you know, that whole process of sitting in on some of the appointments, getting to know some of the clients that they may see in the future. 
that has proven to work really well because by the time they're an advisor, they are not just, you know, speaking from the mindset of a financial advisor or of a wealth planner, but they're actually speaking with conviction on what we do and how we serve because they've been part of it and they understand what's going on behind the scenes. So what we've found for us is it makes for a much more well-rounded advisor when you're able to really, you know, speak from the heart of the company and and you've been there and you've been in the in the weeds per se and been able to be part of that behind the scenes and not just the the front end or the front facing. I'm struck by you just sort of kind of mentioned there briefly like they might hang out in that department for 5 years before before they transition to an advisor role. So I mean, as I'm sort of viewing and hearing it, I mean, you're effectively like you're not hiring advisors. You're you're simply hiring team members in various service support roles across the organization and finding some of them that are ready and willing and able and interested to move into advisor roles who who then eventually move into advisor roles. I mean, is that a fair fair characterization? Because to me, there's there's a difference between like I'm going to hire an advisor and put them in a, into a training and development program versus I'm just going to hire good people who are interested in the business. And hey, if in five plus years, some of them want to move into advisor roles, we'll have those opportunities. Yeah, that's that's an extremely fair analysis. You know, one thing that that I would say is, you know, we live by the mantra of slow to hire, quick to fire. Fortunately, the whole firing end of things hasn't been something we've really had to do much <laughs> because I think when you hire well, you're, you're able to avoid that a little bit. But it's much more important for us, you know, when we're look, going through the hiring process, and I know I keep saying this word, but that cultural fit is more important. And my whole attitude towards hiring in general is you can absolutely train somebody to do just about anything, but you can't always train them to just be a down home, good person, you know, somebody who truly cares and truly, you know, values relationships. So, you know, that's something that has been a major value to us and a major factor in how we hire and how we train. Now, I would say that, you know, your comment about you kind of hope that they want to go into the advisor position. That's definitely maybe not the the case. When we're going through the hiring process and and talking about really where they want to be, where they see themselves, you know, we are definitely having conversations with people that have an interest in that advisory role that want to be client facing at some point, but they understand, you know, they may be fresh out of college. That's actually a couple of our, our really good, probably most recent hires. They're fresh out of school and, you know, they are hungry. They want to learn and they want to serve. And that's just worked really, really well for us and being able to, again, bring them in, train them in the way that we need them to serve, need them to show up for our clients. And yeah, so being able to avoid having to, especially in a town of 10,000, find an advisor that fits that exact magic role that's willing to kind of meld into our processes, that's tough, right? And even if you bring somebody from, say, a metropolitan area, or we have somebody that we scout from, say, Minneapolis or Des Moines or Milwaukee or whatever, the chances of those people staying in an area that's this small not super right. high. And we don't want to go through that cycle again and again. So you don't you don't even necessarily try to, you know, hire and recruit people to come to the area per se. You're looking for people that have an attachment or have a come back to home attachment maybe to the area and say, "Hey, you know, if you're if you're looking for opportunities in the area, we've actually got a really a really nice opportunity and over the span of 5 years you can become a financial advisor with the firm and you're going to start out in our you know, client services or wealth services department and grow and develop that over time. So would you like to come on board and work with us? Exactly. And I'll tell you a funny story, Michael. The only time that, at least in 
in the history that I am familiar with here, the only time that we ever did a full recruitment where they were trying to bring a person into the firm was actually when they were looking for a COO. So looking for essentially a role that I ended up taking over. So at the time, I was actually in the client services department and our operations gal, she was moving away from the area to be closer to her grown children. So they hired this recruiter and, you know, they had on the table a brand new Mercedes and they're doing everything in their power to get some high level COO to come and run the business. So I had come from a management background. You know, I had had gone to school for management. I actually, during college, was managing a jewelry store. That's a nationwide chain, but I was managing a location. And I always knew I wanted to get back into a leadership type role. So I actually asked if I could interview with this recruiter. So said recruiter interviews me, goes back to Brian Sweet, the founder, and says, what are you doing? Hire Brittany. <laughs> so actually, all of that effort and time and energy, I ended up getting put into that position. And to this day, I'm still waiting for my Mercedes. It's like all of those efforts. And what they needed was, was sitting right there. And that's not touting my own horn by any stretch of the imagination. But you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we can't see what's right in front of our nose. And that effort of trying to find talent outside the area can be a long, long journey and it may not always be worth it. So, so how are you finding the talent and the people that you're finding? I mean, I I know a lot of firms that live in dense metropolitan areas that have trouble finding good people from just, you know, voluminous pools of talent, or I was going to like presumably talent. You know, again, you're you're living in a in a much more rural area with just a lot fewer people to begin with. You know, that creates some challenges on the client growth side, which we've talked about. And we'll probably come back to, but just how does that work for you from the the talent end? I mean, is this one of these like when you decide you're going to be hiring that next advisor role, like you could be looking for six to twelve months to find the next person, so you do it really slowly and far in advance? Is is this uh like? particular places that you found that to advertise, if you found a system for it. I mean, just how are you getting the people to be able to do this when you're not in an area that has tons and tons of people to to choose from and pursue in the first place? Yeah. You know, we are huge believers in hiring before you need it. You know, I think that some of the biggest hiring mistakes in general are when people wait until they're in a a state of desperation to try to put a butt in a seat. And what ends up happening is you end up making mistakes. You end up putting the wrong person there or you're, you're rushing and you're kind of trying to fit somebody into a mold that they're just not inherently fit to be into. So we definitely decide when we look at the long-term vision of our company and we're always really measuring within about a three-year time period, measuring the needs, what's going to come up, you know, what are, what's happening in the business? Do we have anybody that's you know getting close to retirement? What are the roles that are going to, going to need to be filled? So that's really how we we kind of start the process of looking at who we might need to hire. The other thing too is our hiring, like our job ads. I would never, ever, ever put out into the world just some basic job ad of like client service associate your duties and responsibilities, you know, processing paperwork, getting signatures, serving clients, answering the phone. Like there's so many, or so much opportunity I think that's lost in the job ad itself. I think you need to treat it like a marketing piece. So typically when we're putting out ads and especially in, you know, a smaller area, we want to stand out and we want to stand out to top talent. So we're using more powerful language like you know, you are a bulldog when it comes to follow through a pit bull, sorry, bulldog slow and floppy. <laughs> A pit bull when it comes no, to... No, no offense to any pit bull fans. Okay. 
But go bulldogs. All right. (laughs) Go bulldogs. So you're you're a pit bull when it comes to follow through. You know, you understand that if you're not getting the right answer, you're probably asking the wrong person. We're making sure that we're using powerful language so that when we're basically putting this message out there of who we need, that person that it resonates with, they're gonna be like, This is me. And then you're gonna get other people that look at it and go, they are nuts. (laughs) And we know that that's probably not the right position or not right person for this position. The other thing that we do too, which I think is a little, you know, kind of golden nugget that I think more and more advisors should take advantage of is requiring any applicant to give a video with it. It doesn't have to be professionally produced. Like the language we put in there is that this does not have to be anything fancy, but simply shoot a video of yourself saying why you think that you would be the best fit for this job. So those tiny little, I guess, innuendos that we put into the job ads is really what ends up attracting amazing talent to our company. The whole thought process around the video is not that we want somebody to show us how brilliant they are with technology and how professional they are and how wonderful they look on camera. It's just to show that number one, they're willing to go the extra mile. And number two, it ends up vetting out so many applicants. So you can imagine in a small area, you have a position open for what's perceived as a successful company. I mean, you're going to get a a decent amount of applicants and a decent amount that probably aren't qualified, that maybe are just applying because it seems like kind of a sexy opportunity. But the people that are actually willing to take the time to get on camera, to submit that, to have that customized cover letter, letter and all of those things that we require, it really slims down your pool and allows us to focus on just a few core people that we know really, really want this job. So those are a couple things that we've done to really help vet top talent. And when you ask them to submit videos, like how, I mean, do you set a length expectation, like a time expectation? I mean, how, how, how long or how much of a video do you ask for? I don't ever put a length expectation on it. The language that we put is that it doesn't have to be fancy. There's no expectations. I think actually in the last one, we stated that, that there's no expectation around this. You know, we just want to hear from you. We want to hear, you know, why are you a great fit? So that's something that, yeah, we leave really wide open. And part of that, part of the reason behind that is I want to see how people decide to show up. And I want to see a little bit of their creativity. So you really get to see kind of how a person's brain works just through that tiny little request. Yeah. Cause I, as you said, you know, we, we've, we've done some similar exercises for our, our hiring process over the, over the years as well for, for some of our businesses. I'm, I'm also a big fan of, of work samples, asking, asking people to produce a sample of the kind of work they would do in the, in the job, like literally give them one of the, give them one of the tasks that they would do in, in the job and ask them to, to do over, you know, take an hour and do a version of that for people later in the interview process where you can ask them for an hour of their time to do that. But we, we deliberately leave them a little bit vague about how to go about it because it's fascinating the range of how people come back with it. One of the exercises I used to do when I was running the financial planning team for my for my former firm and we were and we were hiring financial planners is I would give them an exercise that, that was something in the effect of like, you know, your client just called, their their mother passed away, they're inheriting about three hundred thousand dollars. They've got a mortgage that's actually about three hundred thousand dollars, and they're and they're wondering like, should I you know, should I use the money to pay off the mortgage or or should I invest it, right? Like very classic financial planning y sort of question. Yeah, and you know, just the assignment we would we would give them is write the letter that you would write to your to your clients in response to this, and and just see like, can they format it as a letter? Does it have paragraphs? Does it have sentences? Like yeah. 
do they actually explain sort of investing versus debt? Can they talk about the trade-off? Is it is it understandable? And you know, bonus points if you realize that the proper way to start this letter is, I'm so sorry your mom died. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, do they do they remember that part, or are we like so focused on the you know debt versus investing trade-off that we kind of forget this client started out the email with my mom just passed away? Yeah. And just you know, seeing the range of responses, you get a whole other perspective on how this person's going to communicate with the clients of the firm. And you know, if you if you don't like how they draft that letter in an interview time you're really not going to like how they communicate with the clients once they're on board with the firm. Or at best, you're going to have a lot of training to do to get them up to where you want them to be in communicating with clients. Absolutely. And you know, I think that brings up an interesting point. When you're looking to hire advisors, especially, but really any team member, I think this spans across, across the board and is not just important, but essential to any sort of leadership position. I mean, you just made me think of the term emotional intelligence. You know, when you're looking at that, I think sometimes if you've got an advisory practice that's hiring, you know, let's say your model is hiring an advisor, like you actually want somebody who has some sort of an established book or some sort of experience behind and you want to get them into that role faster. You know, I think that we can sometimes get caught up in the fancy designations in, you know, more of the analytical mind, but that emotional intelligence is so incredibly important because they're able to then intuitively understand their clients a little bit better and be able to meet those emotional needs as well as the financial. So I just, I, I don't mean to you know, completely digress, but I think that's something that, that sticks out today when you're looking at hiring. You've got to have some sort of measure for that. And so as you're going through this hiring process, you had said, you know, we're, we're big believers in hiring before you need it, which, you know, I find for a lot of firms, like, yeah, we all get that sort of intuitively. It's easy to say. And then almost all of us still don't do it. <laughs> like we <laughs> we hire too late. So I, I guess I'm just wondering, like, what do you guys do that just gets you gets you there, gets you comfortable, gets you the point that you're ready to do that? I mean, how do you go about this to make sure you're actually at the right place on the hiring curve? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you're right that we all have great intentions in our business of being ultra proactive and never running into a pinch. But when reality hits, we're in the whirlwind every day. And sometimes these things get put to the wayside. So, you know, something that's worked really well for us in in recent years, especially, you know, we follow the entrepreneurial operating system or the EOS system. Gino Wickman created it. um, Great book traction. I have no affiliation with them whatsoever, but it's a great book. So if you want to understand how to you know, set up structure and process within your business to be able to help you make even better decisions, that's a great roadmap. So one thing that we do, as I mentioned earlier, we're constantly looking at our three-year vision for the company. So, you know, we kind of use the the adage or the joke of who do we want to be when we grow up in three years? And then in that three years hits and we're like, well, now who do we want to be when we grow up in three years? So what we do is we tend to kind of back into that vision. So if we're looking at expanded capabilities, we're looking at, you know, added enhancements to our service offerings for our clients, we're really identifying in that rolling three-year period saying, okay, well, there's a couple ways to solve this. You can either get more efficient You can either add some sort of technology or software, whatever it might need to meet that need, or you have an individual that you need to get into that seat. 
So for us being able to stay kind of in that future mentality, that kind of lean forward into the future, it allows us to be a little bit more proactive with our hiring needs because we can really start measuring what is going to fill that gap. It makes me think of the book, Who Not How by Dr. Ben Hardy and Dan Sullivan, really looking and measuring constantly what are the who's or who are the who's that we might need in the future. So when we go through and create that three-year vision, we then back it into a one-year plan and then dissect it down into 90-day increments for us to be able to actually make tangible strides. So one thing that we've done in, in the recent past, actually as recent as just about a year ago, is we've said, okay, well, one of our 90-day initiatives, because we're going to need this by next year, is we're going to get this job ad up and running. We're going to start vetting candidates. And that gives us you know, a nine-month lead time to when we actually need that position to be filled. So really, I wish there was some fancy magic behind it, but it's really as simple as just being intentional towards that three-year vision and just setting the time. If it's not on your calendar and it's just, you know, a good idea that you know needs to happen, it's probably not going to happen. So if you make it like the objective for your firm to actually get somebody hired or at least start that vetting process, you're going to put your time and attention to it in a much different capacity than if it's just a, yeah, we're going to need it at some point in the future kind of thought process. And so how do you, then how do you set your, your three-year picture? If you're, if like, that's what all this builds up to. Yeah, that's a, I, I love this topic in general. We actually use a couple different tools. So obviously I already mentioned the EOS system, but then we also have um, Cameron Harold wrote a book called Vivid Vision. And that's another great one. So if you're in this spot, if you're sitting here as an advisor listening and you're going, okay, great. Uh, three-year vision, where the heck do I start? In my personal opinion, I think starting with the vivid vision process allows you to at least get your thoughts flowing before you put it into a more formal structure, which is the EOS system. So from our perspective, we'll sit down as a leadership team once a year. We actually meet quarterly, but we have one meeting dedicated. Typically, it's our June meeting. What we do is we go off-site, out of the office, no distractions, no cell phones, no email is up, and we do this deep dive to say, okay, if we're looking at the vision of the company, what does this look like? What does this look like in three years? And we'll have it broken down by category. So it might be you know, who we serve or our avatar. It might be the internal structure of the team broken down into departments. It might be new marketing offerings or ideas. We also look at how we want to be spending our time as individuals. You know, if, if, if the goal is not to eat, sleep, and breathe in the office seven days a week, well, you got to structure things a little bit different. So it's really doing this kind of brain dump into these different categories of your business and your life. And then from there, we take it and say, okay, if we were to bullet out and say, what are the characteristics of our office or what are the things that we want? What do we want to look like in that three-year period? It then goes into that EOS or what they call the, the vision traction organizer, not to get too deep into it, but the vision traction organizer is, is essentially the EOS tool for gaining clarity on that three-year picture, kind of your big, hairy, audacious future goal that you have no idea how the heck you're going to do it, but you know it's what you want. And then you get a little bit more granular down into the one year and then the 90-day increments. So those two tools combined and having that dedicated time off-site as a leadership team to be able to focus on that is really what's been able to help keep us accountable to the vision and to the constant focus on, you know, what it's going to take to get us there. So talk to us now about just how this growth works. I'm curious to come back to this. You, you sort of painted this picture of, I'll just say kind of not necessarily the quintessential advisor that a lot of other firms hire, right? I feel like there's this mentality 
out there, you may be right, maybe wrong, that it just you need a certain kind of entrepreneurial type A style advisor if they're going to actually go and grow the business. Otherwise, you get people who may be great at service and wonderful at client retention, but just don't bring in new clients and don't let the <laughs> business grow. So help us understand a little bit more, like, how does growth work? Where do new clients come from? Help us understand this intersection of not necessarily the quintessential type A, hardcore entrepreneurial E-what-you-kill advisor, but you're still growing. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's it's really a combination of things, I would say. So I, I will be clear that when we're looking at the advisors that we're grooming in the office, part of it is teaching them the skills that are needed along the way to be able to foster and generate more business. Now, I would say that I'd be pretty hard-pressed to to believe or to say that anybody in our office is really that high type A salesperson. Definitely, I would say, don't really have that amongst our advisors. But what we do have is people who are great at relationships. And what happens, so there's a couple different things that we do. So for our advisors, we do a lot of the more like intimate, smaller group type events. So that may be, you know, just the kind of the quintessential or, or what a lot of us are used to. You know, you have your best clients and a lot of times your best clients are associated with other people that are maybe similar to them and you're able to get in front of them and, you know, maybe it's a dinner, maybe it's some sort of an event. Maybe it's based on mutual interests where, you know, you're able to take them to a baseball game or something local here. Like we have five lakes in our small community. So I know one of our advisors spends a lot of time on the lakes and that's where he's been able to foster some business is boat rides. I mean, I know it sounds so simple, but legitimately like that's where some of the business comes into play is just being able to get in front of the people in an intentional way, but with the focus on building that relationship long-term. The other thing that I would say that has helped is we do have a couple different niche focuses. So one of them being, we have a platform that we've actually built for business owners. You know, as many advisors know, there's a lot of wealth and a lot of kind of fun complexities for our industry when it comes to business owners. So we created a platform called Smarter Business, where we actually have a couple different ways of how we can serve business owners. So, you know, we might have an initial engagement with somebody because they're looking for more of like an operational mastery type thing. So I'm able to help them build the culture. I'm able to help them build a situation where they can attract top talent within their business, where they're able to grow their business and set up the right processes internally and serve them in a totally different capacity so that when the time comes for a business succession or a business change of hands or some liquid event, we're also here as their financial advisor to you know help them in that capacity. So that's one niche that's been an interesting one that we are continuing to build out as the years go on. Another one that's really helped to foster lead opportunities, especially is through a platform that's focused on helping women navigate some of the biggest transitions in life. So things like widowhood or divorce, sudden inheritance from deceased family members. You know, we're in a, a rural farming community. So you get, you know, parent, grandparent that passes away. There's land involved. And sometimes the family wants to keep that land. Sometimes they don't. And there's a sale that happens. So again, another liquid event. So we have a lot of time and energy built into these platforms where we have events a handful of times a year. We have different marketing strategies built around that to help bring new faces to get in front of us so that we can continue to build kind of our pipeline. So again, when those triggering needs arise from all aspects of the business, one thing that we say is that 
I want you to be able to say, gosh, I'm so glad I had you versus I wish I would have known. So those are different ways that in our rural community that we're able to continue to get introduced to new people, new relationships, to use the talents and the capabilities of the advisors we have without going out into the world with that hard press sale, sale, sale mentality or that entrepreneurial kind of thought process but more so focus on those relationships and just straight value add, value add in a capacity that maybe isn't happening as much in our industry as it should. When you look at serving in a multitude of ways versus just strictly wealth management. So that's something that, you know, we've found that at least works for us in our area and in our business. Interesting. So, so I guess marketing and growth, it sounds like there's sort of three slash four different channels. There's there's your women's program for trying to connect with widows and divorcees and women in transition. There's the smarter business platform for trying to connect with business owners. There's sort of this events-driven relationship marketing that happens at the advisor level. So, you know, take prospects out to a baseball game, take them out on the lake on a boat ride. And then there's a, a fourth piece that you mentioned earlier uh, of just serving our clients well and trying to generate referrals from, a cl- from clients. Is that a fair characterization of, of the different pokers in the fire on this? Absolutely. I, I think that's absolutely a fair, you know, quick depiction. Okay. Where do you find growth comes from across those? Like, is it pretty even or, or do some of these in practice drive a lot more results and outcome than others? Yeah, I would say that the more direct relationship. So, you know, I mentioned like the boat rides or having some mutual interest where maybe there's some sort of class we hold or facilitate or partner with somebody in that capacity of something that somebody's interested in. I would say those types of introductions definitely facilitate the most opportunity being able to get in front of and in more of like a one-on-one or one-on-two, I guess, if you have, you know, a great client and then they bring somebody that absolutely, I would say generates the most opportunity for us. When you look at the long game, you know, especially with the, the women's platform, a lot of times what happens is, is there's some triggering event in the future that they're going to go, Oh, Sweet Financial is the experts in this. So that's who we're going to lean on. So a lot of what we do in, you know, the women's platform in business too, I mean, Smarter Business is is a great example of this as well. We're constantly playing the long game and over time that pays off. So it's this continual, you know, really business continuity situation where we're looking at the sustainability of the future saying, let's build these platforms and these pipelines so that they're constantly and, and forever feeding back into the business and not something that's just so you know short-term focused. So that's definitely some things that, again, have worked for us. And so how do you figure out just the, the events and the things to do that drive some results? I mean, just I, I know a lot of firms that like, yeah, I do all sorts of social events with clients and prospects, but you know, it feels very hit or miss about whether I get business or I'm not getting much or I you know, can't figure out the right events that actually turn things into, into business, into clients. What are you doing that's making this work? Or I guess, how do you even set for advisors, which things they're going to be pursuing? I think that one thing that as advisors, like we can get in our own way a little bit when it comes to marketing in general and, and event planning. So I'm going to use these kind of synonymously. We can fall in love with kind of our own product offerings or our own service offerings. We may fall in love or believe that because we love something, somebody else is going to love the same thing. So really going into the core of your bit, like look at your best clients and start having conversations with them. 
We have a survey that we have people fill out when they come on board with us that we get updated every few years on their preferences, their interests. So we ask if they like wine, do they like, which sport do they like? You know, what do they like to do for hobbies? Those kind of things. So just because somebody says that they like football doesn't necessarily mean they want to go to the game that's playing on the date that you choose. So it's really going into the core of your business. Have a client advisory council. Pick some of your best clients and some prospects in the area and actually run these ideas through them and ask them what they want. You know, if you're asking for somebody's advice on something, it tends to generate a lot more opportunity for you than just kind of vetting, I guess you could say, or trying to get some answer that you're kind of steering in a certain direction anyway. So not falling into the trap of falling in love with your own service or your own message is absolutely the best way to set a really good marketing game and do things that people actually enjoy and will come to and will attend and will actually have takeaways from it. So I think that's something that's really important for us to remember is that just because you like something or or, or you think it's going to hit, it doesn't necessarily mean your client or your prospect is going to believe the same thing. So can you maybe just give us an example of like what, what do one of these look like that, that you do and like, what's the, what's the takeaway thing at the end that they get and, and how do you actually ask them for business as you go through it? Yeah, that's a great question. So I will use, oh, let's use Women Forward as an example. So a lot of times the way that we structure these events is we absolutely position in our marketing and to get people there, I mean, it's really building a community. So again, we've done a lot of work to try to understand, you know, what will get women and particularly women of wealth in front of us? Like, why would they want to come and listen to us speak? Why would they want to come and and spend their Thursday evening or Saturday morning or whatever it turns out to be with a bunch of strangers? So, you know, we're really heavily positioned on community and on empowering women when it comes to, you don't have to understand the ins and outs. You don't have to be a genius when it comes to your wealth plan or investments or making decisions in that capacity. But what we do want is for you to feel confident that you can at least handle it you know, you at least understand the foundations. So the way that we'll structure it is we'll typically do some sort of presentation where it's, again, focused on value add. It is not salesy in any capacity. So we'll do some sort of education portion. I will come in as kind of the inspiration portion to it. So I do speaking across the country, coaching, you know, primarily advisors at this point, but all different industries. And a lot of that is that inspiration and that empowerment. So we'll have that component that's solely focused on their personal growth. So when you look again at positioning and standing out in our marketplace, it's not just come and listen how to manage your finances better or how to be a savvier investor. It's how do you become an even more well-rounded human being? So we'll do exercises for some personal growth, personal development. And then a lot of times we'll either do like a wine tasting associated with it. We've done like succulent plants because we found that there's this whole little niche of people who kind of love the whole succulent garden thing. So who knew? So that's something that we've done in conjunction with those events too. From there, what we'll do is because they've registered and they've done it through, you know, a series of RSVP landing page per se on the computer, they've gone into then our automated long-term nurture sequence where they're getting an email every week. There's different strategic times where our advisors would follow up with those individuals and essentially talking about, hey, you know, this is what we talked about in the presentation. We always offer a free consultation as part of the the offer or the soft tie-in. So we'll follow up and we'll talk about that. And again, it's it seems like a very soft process, but it's very methodical and it's very planned out. So again, having that long-term nurture sequence, they're automatically put into an email sequence for an entire year 
with different calls to action, different reminders where they can get onto an advisor's calendar, no uh, strings attached, no commitments needed, just having the conversation of where you're at, what your needs might be, what your goals are for the future, and how we might be able to help. Some of those people that have come through have not necessarily been the best fit, but we're always able to add value. So we might direct them to another area advisor, to a local bank, whatever that situation might look like. Because obviously, like every advisor, we can't serve everybody. But then for the people that are that ideal fit, that becomes part of, again, that you know onboarding process and that nurture sequence. So that's really kind of the chain or the process that happens when we engage in these events and in that capacity. And, and how would you promote one of these events? Like, how do you get people to the event in the first place? Yeah, so we've done a few different ways. Obviously, we have and have built, like I talked about, our pipeline or our prospects. So we do a lot of email invitations, those kind of things. We have done some social media kind of paid or sponsored invites in the past. We've looked very strongly, again, at direct mail. That's something that we've done in the past as well. You know, you send out how many different pieces and it's bound based on statistics to at least generate some interest and opportunity there. So we really use a combination of methods to get people in these events. But I will tell you, there's one particular method that has worked really well. And I think it's so insanely simple that it's an important one to at least try. So we actually, we created invites, but we did uh, had a local printer do this little perforation on the side where they had a physical ticket that they could give to a friend who's never met the Sweet Financial and or Women Forward team. And that tiny little thing, a tiny little tweak that we did has generated more prospects and more leads for us than almost anything else that we've tried doing. So it's something about that tiny little tangible piece of paper Mm. that has actually worked. And I think it's it's interesting. And if you would have... Don't just invite a friend and and say something to them like, give them this, right? Just a little perforated piece of paper, like give them this. This is their golden ticket to get into this super secret event. <laughs> so that's something that that has worked really well, at least to get in front of new faces and new prospects. So that's something that we're absolutely going to be doing more of because obviously in marketing and anything in general, if something's working, don't stop because it works so well, you know, keep doing it. So that's something that, that we'll definitely be doing more of in the future. Very cool. So I guess they're just the... The system overall, we'll, we'll do, you know, promote an event, invite people to bring friends to the event, run the event, primarily educational. Everybody goes into a email nurturing sequence after that, and you're just dripping on them and, and repeat it over long periods of time that is added up. Yeah, it's, you know, it sounds so simple, but it's consistency. And I think that's something that as advisors too, and I can be guilty of this as well. I mean, immediate gratification is a good thing. (laughs) You know, you want something where, you know, as advisors, our brains tend to be wired or in our industry, we're wired to say, you know, if you do this, what is the general result? ROI, that term comes up all the time. You know, Mm -hmm. what is the immediate return on my investment? But I think that something, again, to focus on is that long game and going back to the basics. I mean, when you look at marketing in general, set aside all the fancy tactics. I mean, there's a million things and a million different roads we could go down with. How do you utilize YouTube? How could advisors use YouTube in the future? Or what about opportunities on LinkedIn? Or what about on Facebook? Or there's some that have been winning on TikTok and Instagram, which blows my mind in some capacities. But anyways, there's a million different fancy things that tend to be sexy, that tend to catch your attention at a conference. But if there was really one thing that you worked on that would be putting that long-term email sequence in place. 
something that can do the work for you and make sure that you have a task management system could be as simple as in your outlook to make sure that you're consistently following up with these people and staying front of mind. Those little tiny things, it's going to take a little bit of work on the front end, but in the long game, it's going to pay off. Rory Vaden is the founder of Brand Builders Group, and he has this whole, uh, I guess, thought process or program built around how do you create more time? And part of that is giving yourself permission today to do the things that will generate more time for you in the future. So something like that is this long-term email sequence. So sit down with a copywriter. I mean, there's a million people out there you can hire to do this. You don't have to do it yourself. Hire a copywriter to sit down and create valuable emails, not just market updates, because that's something that we hear too, is advisors will be like, oh yeah, I have a weekly email. It's the market update. It's like, okay, well, blah, you know, that's not going <laughs> to necessarily generate people to take action. So sit down, have that long-term sequence created, get 52 weeks of content put out there, and then be able to set it and forget it. That's going to free up your brain to know that if nothing else, if nothing else, if you get caught in the whirlwind, they're getting touched by that and you know there's value in it and it's built and customized for your ideal avatar. I think that's something really important that advisors should take advantage of. So help us understand now your journey through the, through the firm. I, you know, I, I know like you, you started there essentially straight out of college. You are, are now president of the firm. That's, that's quite, quite a journey (laughs) unto itself. So talk us through how this has evolved for, for you within the firm. Like where did you start and how did you get in the, in the firm just to get going in the industry? Yeah. So actually, as I was in college, I mentioned this just briefly before, but as I was in college, I was actually working for a nationwide jewelry chain. So I had been going to school in California and decided to transfer schools over back to Minnesota. My mom lived here and still does to this day. So I wanted to be closer to her. And so I had started school out there, worked for this jewelry chain and was able to transfer. So that was wonderful. That was great. Went through their management and leadership training right as I was going through my management degree at the same time in college. So I quickly realized that the corporate world was just not for me. Having (laughs) how many people to report to, and this is how you do things, and don't you dare think outside the box. And there was just something in me that said, I just don't think I can do this forever. Good thing to realize when we're still in our (laughs) 20s, some people get get a lot further along before they realize like, oh, I got to do something different. Yeah. So yeah, in, in that corporate world, it just it just wasn't something that really resonated. It wasn't something that I, I felt, you know, compelled and connected to anymore. So this job ad pops up for a client service associate in the town that I was living, actually where I was working and going to school was about an hour away. So between the commute and retail hours, this job popped up and it was in this super nice building tucked in this corner of the town. It was like the mystery building. So I, I got the gumption to apply for a job and long story short, getting ended up getting hired into the client service associate role. Actually ended up taking a, a massive pay cut to come into the company. And there was just something, and I don't just say this, I mean, this is the, the God honest truth. There was something in me that was like, I have to work there. I need to learn about this industry and, and everything, you know, from the website to the people I had interacted with. I mean, everything was just so compelling to me because it was so client centric. I mean, it was nothing promoting, you know, them necessarily. It was all client centric. And I, I just loved that. So come into the business, knew I always wanted to get back into leadership or management, ended up getting moved into the director of operations role, 
moved into then the COO role as time evolved, and then finally promoted to president. And I'm one of the owners now at Sweet Financial. And I would say that a lot of the journey and just the involvement and coming kind of up through the ranks, I guess you could say, I would honestly say a lot of it is I spent a heck of a lot of time with the founder. You know, when you're in operations and you're managing the business as a whole, you kind of have to stay connected to the founder and the CEO. And we found that we shared a lot of the same processes or same thought processes when it came to vision, when it came to the future of the company, when it came to actually, you know, coaching and growth and being lifelong learners and, you know, really looking at and expanding upon not just our own capabilities, but the capabilities of the team as a whole. So that's a little bit of the journey, kind of in a nutshell there, Michael. (laughs) So the original job that you applied for and took was a a client service associate role? Yes, it was client service. And it was actually servicing one of, he's a partner now, but he, he was fairly newly taking over quite a few clients and they needed somebody quickly to be able to come in and and help service those clients. It just grew beyond the single client service associate that they had at the time. So I really came in to support one primary advisor. And just what, I mean, aside from the, you know, seemed like a good firm. I wanted my, I wanted to be there. Just what was it that led you to apply for the role and pursue this for, as, as you noted, like a massive pay cut at the time. I mean, just what, what were you seeing or what was compelling you to say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take this leap? I think a big part of it was, you know, I knew uh, at least a couple of their clients just from being in a smaller close-knit community and they had nothing but absolutely just raving things to say about the client service level, the advisors in the office about the founder and you know, I just looked at it going, you know, I, I want to learn more about the business. I want to understand how they actually help people. This is just a little bit of backstory, but I grew up with a single mom. And, you know, I remember at different times in my life, I actually opened the door to her bedroom and saw her crying over her checkbook and not knowing how she was going to pay the bills from month to month. And, you know, keep a roof over our heads, plus the utilities on, plus the food in the fridge and everything else that comes with, you know, raising two kids on your own. So I knew deep down that I I didn't want that. I didn't want that for her anytime in the future. I didn't want it for myself and, you know, my future potential family. And that was something that, that really sparked interest in me and in understanding more what it takes to build wealth, to accumulate wealth and to help serve people and help them, you know, reach their goals and their dreams and all that's possible. Because I think indirectly, when you're serving people in that way and in that capacity, you end up, you know, learning a lot along the way about yourself. So that's maybe a little bit deeper layer as to what drew me into this industry. And so then how did the the process work of, of climbing the ladder? I think you said like client service associate to director of operations, to COO, to the, to, to president, like how does that mobility come about or how do those role changes happen? One thing that that happened was our director of operations, as I mentioned, she moved to be closer to her adult children. So knowing that I wanted to get back into leadership and back into, I guess, management is such an icky word, I think, but, you know, in that capacity. So that position opened up and they ended up really wanting to scout for, like we talked about, like that, that high level COO. And, you know, what happened was, is I said, you know, I really want to apply for this role. I believe I can do it. And I believe that it's aligned with, you know, my strengths and talk to this recruiter that they had hired. And it's kind of all history from there. Sorry. I just want to clarify, like at the end of the day, it came about because just they were running a hiring process externally. And you just said like, 
no, I want to apply for it too. Yeah. I said, you know, I, I just want a shot. <laughs> I, I want to apply. And I know, you know, I was young. I wasn't that far out of college at that point when that role opened. And it can be, a, I mean, I understand from their perspective, you're looking at this, this young gal and, you know, she's hungry. She's on fire for life. And you're going, all right, well, can, can you handle this operation? So yeah, so that the recruiter actually looked at Brian, the founder, and was like, you need to just hire Brittany. Like, this is so easy. <laughs> so yeah, so I ended up taking that role. And as, as time evolved, as I kind of mentioned, you know, Brian and I started working closer and closer together. And I really found that, you know, kind of looking at inherent abilities or what drives you and, and what really gets you excited and, and happy to get out of bed in the morning and helps your feet, you know, bounce off the ground. It was really looking at the vision and the future of the company and paving the way for, you know, to, to be a leader for the team and to be a leader for our clients, really. So as time has evolved on, you know, Brian looking at making sure we have solid succession within the business. He had at the time, a couple partners, both of them are absolutely brilliant at what they do. One is an advisor. He's an amazing advisor. The other is our director of wealth services and works very closely with our high net worth clients. They are both amazing individuals. And I think the one piece that Brian had felt was missing was kind of that visionary, like who's going to be that person that continues to drive and foster ideas for the future of the company. And that was something that I was very aligned with. So when we were talking about, you know, my career path and that involvement and everything, that's really how the president role came about was Brian, he's going to be active in this until he physically can't anymore because he loves this industry and he loves his career and loves the clients, but wants to make sure that every aspect of the business is covered for the longevity of the company. So that's really where my path came into play there. So help us understand just some of the roles and and responsibilities. Like I just, you you. You guys clearly have some very intentional sort of separations and differences between what it means to be a COO, what it means to be a president, because that was that was a role change for you, and and Brian, the founder, is is still out there as well with whatever title he carries. I don't know, just carries founder title or if he's got a, a <laughs> yeah, founder, like a yeah. CEO title as well. How do you carve up in practice the 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 duties, the roles, the responsibilities between a founder and a president and a COO, like who, who does what? What's the, what's the difference between these labels? <laughs> well, once we figure it out, I'll let you know. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so I'll just give some context around this. So Brian is the founder is consistently, he's very entrepreneurial in nature. We actually have outside of Sweet Financial, a couple different businesses that we own together. He has another one that he has another partner on. So he's very much that entrepreneurial person. So his whole focus at this point is in creating opportunities for the company and really continuing to look forward into the future and acting as that, that bigger visionary. So when you look at my role then as the president, I really am the leader of the firm. So, you know, one thing that I, I like to say is if I am not creating, leading, inspiring, or moving people into action, then I'm probably doing something that's outside of what I should be spending my time on. So a lot of what I do, it revolves around, I mentioned earlier, you know, our, our internal process or the way we do business is through the dream architect. So constantly looking at how can we use that to guide us towards our vision, you know, not only for our clients, but for our team as well. So I'm a lot, I'm a behind a lot of the different marketing initiatives, you know, making sure I'm not, I'm not necessarily the one that's doing them, but making sure that the vision is clear, that the expectations are set, and that the company is always driving towards that future. 
And then you have our COO, which is like, if you, again, are familiar with the EOS system, she's like the boots on the ground, making sure the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, that deadlines are met, that things are moving into action. I mean, she's in essentially the whirlwind of the business. So she is that person that's constantly interacting with the different departments. You know, she's managing kind of the finances of the operation. She's really doing kind of the day-to-day to make sure that the wheels don't fall off and that everything is moving towards that vision that Brian and I have set. And so what was it like for you then making the shift from having that role? Because you, you sounds like you, you wore the COO hat to kind of Brian's president leader hat. Then Brian moved even further into focusing on creating opportunities for the, for the business. You moved into the present role. Someone else moved into the COO role that you, that you previously had. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, what's it, what's it like and where are the challenges in moving from that COO role to that president leadership role? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because thinking back, we actually hired our COO in February of 2020. So if you think about the timing on that, about, you know, a few Mm -hmm. weeks later, pandemic hit. I wish I could just say that it's all, you know, easy and fabulous and everything just wonderfully fit into place. There were some challenges along the way. The COO that we hired, she's amazing. And honestly, you know, the way that we look at this is, when you're hiring, you got to, you got to let your ego and your pride go away. So when I was looking at hiring this position, I'm like, I want somebody that's going to be an even better COO than I was. I want somebody who's even more organized, who is even better at follow through and deadlines. And that's essentially what we found in her. And part of the struggle is actually getting out of some of the things you're normally involved with. So for me, I, I had a very close relationship. I should say, I still have a close relationship, a very hands-on in the day-to-day kind of assignments, tasks, things that were going on in the firm and being able to step back from that and know that, hey, I have a COO that I can actually run things through and actually be the filter and kind of separate myself a little bit from that day-to-day management per se. That was something that, that was hard. And it's still something that I have to kind of put myself in check on and say, Brittany, this isn't your role anymore, you know, pass yeah. this over to our COO. So, you know, it's just making sure that your, your mindset stays in the right place and that you remember kind of where you should be spending time. And again, it goes back to that handful of activities. I know if I'm working outside of that, then I'm probably doing something that I shouldn't be doing. So that's something that I would say has been, it's been a challenge, but it's been a huge blessing in return. So what surprised you the most about the process of building an advisory business? I would say that the biggest surprise was in the the ways, the breadth of opportunities and how you can actually serve people. You know, when I came into this, not knowing, I mean, I'll be completely transparent and honest, I really had no clue what this industry entailed. I mean, I was coming into this completely green, thinking, okay, I'm going to learn what it takes to manage investments. And, and that was absolutely not the case. I mean, it's it's so much more holistic than that. And when I look at within Sweet Financial in particular, I mean, we end up wearing so many different hats. I mean, you're an advisor, you're a planner, you're sometimes a psychologist, you're a friend, sometimes you're a punching bag. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different facets to our industry. And, you know, I think as time evolves, this is something that it still surprises me to this day, how many opportunities we have to serve people on whole new levels. So I think our, our industry is, is such a great one to be in because there's just so many things that we can do for people and, and ways that we can serve at, at a more holistic level. So I think that's something that it continues to surprise me to this day. In practice, then, just how do you, how do you navigate and figure out the opportunity set when, when there are 
so many opportunities and it's pretty easy to <laughs> get spun up on too many at once and not necessarily get momentum on many or any of them in the process. Yeah. Shiny object syndrome is a <laughs> real thing. <laughs> oh yes. Yes. And I, I personally have that entrepreneurial brain and I don't know if it gets better or worse with awareness. So one thing I would say, and I know this sounds maybe a little redundant, but when you look at opportunities, cause you know, I'm involved in, you know, a couple different masterminds. We run a mastermind for advisors. So imagine you're in a room with a bunch of really smart advisors. How many ideas do you think you're going to get? <laughs> So, you know, it's those things that, you know, I fully believe in constantly putting myself in a room with people that are even smarter than me. I think one thing to do, and this is where the redundancy comes into place, it's measure everything against your vision. That is literally the only thing that has helped to keep myself and, you know, our company as a whole accountable is when you're looking at, all right, if this is who we've committed to being as a company in three years, does this actually fit or is this a total sideline? Is this something that's going to be a distraction or is it an enhancement or way to create opportunity towards this vision? So if you use that as a measure, I mean, that's something for us at least that has worked tremendously when you've got, you know, myself and Brian together, we are squirrel chasing shiny object people and it can be tough. So that's something that's really worked well for us is just staying true to that vision and holding each other accountable to it as well. And setting that vision comes from places like traction in the EOS system or or Cameron Harold's vivid vision, just to try to figure out like if you're not actually really sure what your vision is, that's how you figure out and set what your vision is. Yeah. And you know, one thing I would say too is, you know, those are just two tools. I mean, the internet's a wonderful place. I mean, you could Google visioning exercises. So those are just things that have worked for us internally here. There's a million different ways you can do it. And the thing that that I think is so important that, you know, we as humans, really, this isn't just advisors, this is humans in general need to embrace is that we all plan and think about things different. So for me, for example, I love to sit down and write in detail. Like I've, I love to write. That's something I'm passionate about. So for me to do a visioning exercise, like Cameron Harold's vivid vision process is right up my alley mm. because it's detailed. It's, you know, it allows you to get kind of colorful with it. And you actually bring this picture to life through your writing. Now, if you're somebody that's like, I just want the facts, I want to bullet point it out, <laughs> then do that. Like if that's what works for you, there is no right or wrong way to create a vision for your future. So I think sometimes that's where we get hung up, where we think we have to do it a certain way. And it's just not true. Just find the way that works for you and just put it down to paper. That's at least the first step towards that creation. So what does a typical week then look like for you at this point? Like how does, how does this role live day to day? Yeah. So <laughs> we're in the height of, of a few projects during the time of this recording. So really day to day, a lot of, again, my time and energy is spent on creation. So what that might mean is fostering or vetting out, you know, what does our next big marketing initiative look like? Brian and I together have written multiple books. So making sure that, you know, what's that message look like? You know, we're in the process of actually launching another one right now. So really looking at the creation, the future opportunity. And so when you look at kind of that quiet blocked out time, it's creating additional opportunities for the firm. Also, my time is spent in meetings. You know, I kind of joke, it's like the death by meeting, but we have, and I will say, this is another testament to the EOS system. Every week we have a leadership meeting. 
where basically our leadership team gets together. It's for a set amount of time, same agenda every week. We talk about, you know, where's the, what's the status of the company? Uh, what are the issues that are arising right now? And what are things we need to solve for? So having that dedicated time on the calendar has been absolutely monumental for the success of our business and for keeping us focused. And also along those lines, you know, obviously I have time where I spend with our COO, and with Brian as the founder, because we are involved in multiple different businesses, you know, not only focusing on the growth here, but also on some of our other ventures as well. So really looking at that build out of opportunities and executing on that vision. And I guess part of the distinction here of, of why and the importance of the, of the COO role is like, that's the person making sure the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed of the things that happen day to day in the business so that you can stay focused on on the creation and opportunity stuff. Absolutely. And one thing that I will tell you is like to find a great COO that can help circumvent this. I am the quintessential drive-by delegator. And it is, I mean, it's an awareness that I've had for a while now that I, like, if I've got an idea, it's like, yes, let's go hammer this out really quickly. And, you know, the team is like shell-shocked by some of it. <laughs> so a great COO is able to take that and I can, I can do that drive-by delegation to her. And then she takes it and puts it into a format that's actually, you know, executable and able to follow with the deadline associated and all of that. So that's been something that has been absolutely wonderful, kind of offset maybe one of my weaknesses per se, and help, you know, that COO role really helps, like you said, I's dotted, T's crossed, and making sure that things actually are moving through in a very systematized, process-driven way. So what was the low point for you on this journey? Hmm. Gosh, you know, I, I think that there's peaks and valleys, and I think that if anybody were to tell you, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast too, it's like, wow, growth and opportunity and moving from, you know, being fresh out of college and now you're president and 13 years later and whatever. I mean, that sounds like a really exciting journey, but there's been definitely struggles along the way. And I think this is, this is interesting because I think that people should spend a little bit more time with themselves. So I'm going to frame this by saying that by really understanding where your strengths lie I think that that's where opportunity becomes abundant. So for me, there was actually a point in the business before I got more so into the operations type role where I was thinking long and hard about the future and the career. And it wasn't necessarily because of anything with the company, but it was because I was working and trying to fit a mold that wasn't me. And we have the, the, the people that are in our, our concierge, our client service team at this point in time are wonderful and they're excellent at what they do and they love it. I was beat up, you know, for me to follow through, like with the paperwork and the processing and, and all of it that comes with that, it was outside of my skill set. So there was a time where I thought strongly about just leaving and kind of throwing in the towel for everything. So I would say that that's, that's one point. The other, I would say kind of biggest roadblock was a little bit of when we were navigating between that COO and that presidency role. And I mean, literally Brian and I sat in conversations and he's like, Brittany, you have to craft this job description. Like I can't do this for you. You have to decide what is it that you're going to get off your plate to be able to free up to essentially generate the growth and opportunity for the business. So I sat there and for a moment in time, as I'm crafting this job description, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I feel like I've been failing. If I'm saying that all of these things are things that I'm not wonderful at, it's like my entire job. <laughs> so that was another point that was really hard. And I would say that I pushed kind of hard for a while saying, 
Brittany, you've got to craft this and you have to, you understand your strengths. I can sit here and give you guidance, my opinion, but you've got to craft this. And you're the one that has to say kind of what this looks like in the future. You know, that's why you're being moved into the president role is to be able to make these decisions. So again, you, you have to remain humble along the way and ego aside and strengths, weaknesses, all of that combined, you know, that's sometimes tough making that jump into something that's totally foreign that's never been done before because the founder himself was the president the whole entire time. Right. So there's been nobody else in that role and it's, it's big shoes to fill. And it's, I mean, it's scary. So that was something that I would say definitely was a struggle or a roadblock. What do you know now you wish you could go back and tell you 13 years ago when you were applying for the, the job and, and trying to get your foot in the door at the firm? Oh, if I would have from that beginning moment, the first day that I walked through the doors at Sweet Financial is to completely move through fear. That is something that I think really would have moved me even faster into where I wanted and needed to be. That's something, you know, for myself now as a little bit more of a mature adult, depending upon who you ask, <laughs> as time has gone on, as experience has gone on, that's something that I focus a lot on now is that, you know, if I'm scared and if I have that pit in my stomach, it probably means I'm doing something right. Whereas I think maybe before fear held me back a little bit. So I think that's one thing that I would definitely change or give myself a little advice on if I could go back 13 years. So I'm also curious for your perspective, I guess your advice for women looking to come into the financial services industry. You know, as, as I'm sure you know, we don't have a lot of women in the industry. We have even fewer in any kind of present leadership role the way that that you have. So what advice would you give to young women or I guess even career-changing women looking to come into the financial services industry today? Yeah, I think that 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 is there's so much wonderful opportunity there. Actually, I pulled I pulled a couple of statistics, you know, recently around women in just in general, when it comes to wealth control. And I think this is important for advisors to pay attention to. So I have gone through a training. It's with Darren Hardy, who was the creator of, this, of Success Magazine. He went through this, this whole lineup of statistics that said that actually two-thirds of the wealth in the world is controlled by women. That's an insane statistic. And actually, I think this is an interesting thing too, is that you know when you think about services and or products that are actually marketed to men, women actually purchase 50% of those. So think about that. So all these things that are marketed to men, services that are positioned towards men, industries geared towards men, women are making decisions more and more. There's never been a more active time where women are in the workforce and men are actually kind of that role reversal where they may be stepping back to be like the homemaker or taking care of the kids and, and, and all of those things that traditionally women have done. So all of that being said, I think that there's going to be a, a massive transfer of wealth to women in coming years. And I think that if you're looking as a woman to come into this industry, I personally don't think there's ever been a better time. And when you look at, you know, being able to foster those connections and those opportunities and just being able to serve women of wealth coming from that female perspective, I think that there's a lot to be had on the table. And I think that, you know, being in this game as a woman, you just have to definitely stay strong and just know that this industry is absolutely made for you. It's just making the conscious decision to put forth the effort and decide that this is, this is the direction that you want to go. But I think with the wealth transfer and with more and more women stepping into these higher level positions, it's just, there's, there's never been a better time than ever to get into the advisory role as a female. 
So what comes next for you at this point? Oh, there's always so much opportunity. And my husband gives me a hard time. He's like, Brittany, do you ever think about like right now? Cause you're always in the future. I'm like, yes, that is something I'm working on. <laughs> So what's next for me is, is really looking at, you know, we have some really big, exciting projects going on at Sweet Financial. So I see our company moving fast beyond the actual $1 billion assets under management mark. So that's something that I definitely am going to have a big part of, you know, coming into the near future. Also, you know, we continue to build out our ultimate, we have a platform called Ultimate Advisor Coaching and being able to kind of take all of the things that we've learned along the way and teach other advisors. You know, I can, I see us enhancing the way that we do that in such a high capacity. And there's so many exciting things that we are excited to teach other advisors about so they don't have to necessarily reinvent the wheel. So those are a couple things that, you know, I'm personally excited about for the future and really leaning into and looking forward to. And obviously all the milestones that come with being a mama at the same time, you know, as my kids grow and we have those experiences. My speaking coach, actually, he softly reminds us once in a while that when you have children, you only have 18 summers. And that's something that I keep in the back of my head all the time is that success is wonderful and accomplishment is great, but there's nothing better and more fulfilling than raising great humans. So that's something that I definitely embrace and lean into going into the future here. So as we wrap up, this is a, a podcast about success. And, and you know one of the themes that come up is just the, the word success means very different things to different people sometimes. And so you know, you're you're on this wonderful path for success and and 13 years from from entry level to president to the firm and and coming up on a billion dollars so you know the 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 business and career are going very well on the success track but how do you define success for yourself mm. at this point That's such a great question I actually have a, a little post-it note that's stuck to my computer monitor. It's a quote from Tony Robbins, and it says, success without fulfillment is the ultimate failure. So for me, when I look at success and, and the definition of it, I think of it synonymously with fulfillment. And this maybe sounds a little bit corny or a little bit cheesy, but you know, again, there's, there's another quote out there, and I'm drawing a blank on who says this, but when you help other people reach their definition of success it in turn comes back to you tenfold. So for me, being able to help people, whether it's through our clients, through advisors, through businesses, whatever, being able to truly reach and achieve their goals and their dreams, that is massively fulfilling to me. So I think that in turn allows me to focus again on you know my own goals and wants and desires for my future and for the future of my family and all of that. So you know, fulfillment is really synonymous with that. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Brittany, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Thank you, Michael. It's been my pleasure. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.